Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to Word Bomb by TVO, the podcast that explodes today's most talked about words and brings you stories the dictionary doesn't tell you. I'm Pippa Johnstone. And I'm Karina Palmatesta. Today we are talking about the word trigger. Quick note, today's episode contains discussions about violent topics that may be triggering to survivors. That's pretty meta to put a trigger warning on an episode about the word trigger, hey? Yes, it is. Yes, (laughs) we're talking about trigger warnings, which may in themselves be triggering. In fact, even... The word trigger can be triggering. Yeah, there's actually a note on the website Everyday Feminism about how they use the term content warning instead of trigger warning because the word trigger evokes violent weaponry imagery. So that can be re-traumatizing for folks who've suffered from military, police, or other forms of violence. Hmm. So what are we talking about when we talk about the word trigger? Trigger like trigger on a gun? Could be. The noun trigger actually appears first in the early 1600s, meaning, yeah, like a a lever that sets some mechanism into action when you pull it. Okay. But the more figurative meaning to, like, set off a chain of events wasn't commonly used till around 1930. Okay, cool. And the trigger we're talking about today is also in the figurative sense, also relates to a chain reaction of sorts. We're talking about the word trigger in the mental health context. The word is often linked to post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, a term that was coined in the late 1970s. Before we had the term PTSD, similar symptoms were labeled as shell shock or battle fatigue, diagnoses for soldiers returning from war with trauma symptoms. Mm -hmm. But the diagnosis of PTSD is very specific and narrow, and the experience of triggering is much broader and can affect anyone with a history of trauma. Right. For people who've experienced trauma, disturbing memories can be triggered by sights, sounds, smells, or even feelings, which bring them right back into that moment where they were traumatized. I talked to Alicia Raimundo, a public speaker living in Toronto. Alicia shared with me that they have triggers that still affect them to this day. I've experienced sexual assault when I was young, just starting university from a professor. And when it was fresh, it was literally anything that reminded me of that professor would make me want to throw up. It's really hard. It's really scary. If you don't know what's happening and the first time it happens to you, it just it feels like your mind, which can do so many amazing things to protect you, just turns against you. When I'm triggered, my whole experience shuts down and I just get violent flashbacks of what had happened to me. I shake. My hands and my legs will shake. I just get very nauseous and need to go to a corner and just deep breathe. I just, I really need to cleanse my mind and get out of it. That sounds really terrifying. Especially if it's a trigger that you could just run into on the street or on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Alicia's experience sound really extreme, but triggering can take so many different forms. Some people respond with fear or panic or sadness even. 
And some people experience flashbacks where this vivid memory will flood back into their mind, causing some people to even lose track of their surroundings and actually relive that trauma. Alicia mentioned experiencing shaking, nausea, vomiting, while others might experience physical symptoms as severe as fainting. So let's turn to the word trigger. Your first association with the word is probably the idea of trigger warnings. Oh yeah, it totally is for me. But when did trigger warnings start? It's a bit murky to pin down, but generally trigger warnings started being used on niche feminist online communities in the late 90s. Cool. So think like message boards, forums, blogs of feminist magazines, and it started migrating to sites like LiveJournal, mm-hmm. Tumblr in the early aughts. I love calling the early 2000s the early aughts. It makes it sound so much cooler than it was. It doesn't make you think of tube tops, matching denim suits. Or like jelly sandals. Mm -hmm. So these early trigger warnings tended to be about sexual violence or rape. And the people who were writing them in were doing it like as a community effort, a way to keep these online spaces inviting and inclusive. That's awesome that that's how the spirit started, because I feel like the conversation around trigger warnings is pretty different now. Yes, definitely. I talked to Amber Moore, who's a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia. Our alma mater. Yes. And she studies language and literacy education there. Her research centers around teaching trauma literature. What's that? So it's any sort of text that takes on more intense or difficult or risky subject matter. And she teaches this to adolescents. So she has a unique window into navigating content warnings for highly charged topics. Quite a number of years ago, I worked as a volunteer rape crisis hotline counselor. I would talk to folks that would call in who had typically been sexually assaulted and sometimes they called in because they were experiencing a flashback or they were having a panic attack because something had triggered them. And so having been through the process of trying to talk someone down from that, I sort of realized the very real danger of being triggered and how it can be so terrifying. The way that I understand content warnings or trigger warnings is that they're signs that are designed to mark and warn folks about content that might be upsetting. And really, I think it's about taking time and creating space to allow for someone to just take a moment and do a self-assessment and figure out if they're in a good place to explore what might be potentially distressing material. So Pippa, you looked into why that triggering reaction happens. I did. Exactly why triggering happens isn't settled, but there are a few main schools of thought. One is that when the traumatic event occurs, the body goes into fight or flight mode. So any bodily functions that aren't necessary for survival come to a halt. So one of those functions is short-term memory formation. So the body in panic doesn't form memories like usual, which totally rings true for me. I mean, I've definitely had like auditions or times on stage where I have barely any memory of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I tell you a story that this reminds me of Mm -hmm. from my own life? Okay, so this happened a couple years ago. And uh, background, after rewind about a decade, I had a close relative who died, and I was the last to find out about it because I was away at camp. So I have this little, like, knot in me around the idea of finding out bad news last, Mm -hmm. right? So a couple years ago, I woke up in the morning, Mm -hmm. picked up my phone, And the first thing I see is a message from my godmother. (laughs) My heart is like racing just telling about it. Um, And the message said, I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. Let me know if there's anything I can do. And so I immediately, like zero to 60, without a doubt, was convinced that my mom had died. And and that everyone knew except 
for me. Mm-hmm. And it was happening again. And for the next 10 minutes, I was pacing. I was shaking. I was like muttering nonsense under my breath. Whoa. I uh, started frantically brushing my teeth <gasps> at one point because for some reason I had it in my head that I couldn't go to the airport to fly to Ontario where my mom lives without my teeth being brushed. It's like, I don't, I don't know. It was like being blacked out. Like I have very little memory of that space of time. And then I am frantically calling home, calling my dad, calling my brother, calling everyone. And I finally get through. Someone picks up and my mom says, Hey, Karina. What's up? Good morning. (laughs) Like completely normal. And it had turned out that my godmother had meant the message for someone else Mm. and everything was fine. And I burst into tears on the phone with my mom and just like sat on the floor and sobbed. It was just like, and I honestly did not stop shaking for hours. Oh, yeah. Um, And it was the only time anything like that's ever happened to me. And it was such a violent, uncontrollable physical lockdown. Yeah, and what I love about that is how your brain can shut off memory formation there, right? Yeah, it's like you get thrown exactly right back into the moment of original trauma. Yeah, yeah. Which totally supports the theory we're discussing because this idea is that the panicked mind misfiles the traumatic event. So instead of being stored as a past event, the memory gets filed in that moment of panic as a current threat. So when someone is triggered by a similar situation or Mm -hmm. something reminiscent like you experienced, the mind and the body respond as if the event is currently happening and goes into that fight or flight mode like you did. Mm -hmm. And that memory could be anything. It's one of the complicating factors for trigger warnings. One of the things that Amber and I talked about is how there's no rule book for trigger warnings. And that's so true because there's such a complex psychological reaction that can be really unpredictable. Right. Just about anything can be a trigger for someone. There are some that are more common, like Alicia mentioned sexual assault. Other common themes are things like self-harm, racism, violence, mentions of death or dying. Yeah, and you see trigger warnings for those all the time. Right. But then there are personal triggers, things that might remind someone more specifically of their own trauma. Like how Roxane Gay has written about how the smell of beer on someone's breath can be triggering. Because that's tied to a traumatic memory for her. Mm -hmm. There are triggers that are unique to a person's experience and then more general triggers that affect a larger group. Mm. So when a publication wants to create a trigger warning, they can't necessarily protect against those more specific ones. Yeah, you're not going to see trigger warning beer. But you might see trigger warning sexual assault. Of course. As the use of trigger warnings moves out of feminist blogs and into institutions like universities and social media and mainstream publications and even art, they're running into really rocky territory. Amber is in academia, so she has a great view into that conversation. Here's Amber. You know, I think there's a lot of brouhaha about content warnings, especially in academia. I think a lot of people find them to be anti-intellectual. So I think some people think that they're a way to shut down debate or shut down disagreement. And I think sort of similarly, a lot of folks find them to be pretty infantilizing or a way to coddle people. I think sometimes content warnings are understood as sort of an opt-out tool when people don't want to engage with something that's contrary to how they think and feel. And I do understand that that's a legitimate concern because I speak from my context as an educator. We don't want content or trigger warnings to function as like a hall pass. I think some people might understand them to be a form of like 
political correctness run amok, <laughs> or like they might understand them as interfering with free speech in some way. But at least in the way that I use them, I, I don't mean them to be a form of censorship whatsoever. I think what she said about trigger warnings being a hall pass is such a great metaphor for, I think, what's on a lot of people's minds. That it's sort of like an easy out. Yeah, it's a way of coddling someone or letting them off the hook. I think the idea that people should never be uncomfortable is a really dangerous one. Being uncomfortable has its place in the human experience. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. And even traumatic experiences can create that growth, too. We've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, but psychologists have a name for the positive that comes from trauma. It's called post-traumatic growth. It's a phenomenon where people who've experienced trauma experience positive after effects and might even feel better off after a horrible event. Okay, like after effects like what? For example, a new lease on life, feelings of rejuvenation, mm. new sense of groundedness or spirituality. Mm -hmm. It's like that cliche of a near-death experience kind of reviving you as a person. Totally. Amber actually mentioned this great feminist scholar, Sarah Ahmed, who talks about how important it is to be unsettled she has this book called Living a Feminist Life, and Amber draws on it a lot for her research. Ahmed writes, We need to attend to the bumps. It is bumpy. We have to stay with the feelings that we might wish would go away. Ooh. Which I thought was such an elegantly put thought. I think that's a really crucial point. You can be unsettled and also approach unsettling content but with care and not with carelessness. Exactly. But because of this hall pass idea, you get a lot of eye rolls when triggering or trigger warnings are brought up. And I feel like there's a misunderstanding or misuse on both sides because like Alicia said, the left book is guilty of overusing it or using it in the wrong situations. Yeah, you don't want to like carpet bomb everything with trigger warnings because it just gets lost in the noise right? and it stops meaning anything mm -hmm. and then in the right end of the political spectrum i feel like the word has been for lack of a better word memeified turned into gifs people write it online with stars beside it to sort of mock how hypersensitive people are being yeah it's a punchline mm -hmm. it's a punchline and a really easy way to dismiss someone and their experience I asked Alicia how they feel about the use of the word triggering online, and they had the greatest comeback ever. I see people making a meme out of it. It's just, to me, in a way, just so boring. Like, if your comedy is punching down at people, what are you even doing? Like, <laughs> it's just like you're, you're punching down an experience that you don't have. And I know you don't have it because if you did, you wouldn't use it like that. I look at that and I roll my eyes and I'm just like, Ugh. like if you're going to try to be funny, at least be creative. <laughs> I really like that comeback. Oh, that's so much more cutting to call something boring. Very Don Draper. I think it's really important to note that triggering is associated with white culture, yes. universities, online culture, young people. Oh, these these millennials and their participation trophies and their trigger warnings. They want to be like coddled and comforted and protected from any kind of discomfort. Yeah, but PTSD and triggers affect any population. Mm -hmm. It's like triggering has been pigeonholed in a couple ways. Mm -hmm. Like you have the dismissive end of the spectrum, millennials, snowflakes, that kind of thing. Or the more clinical, like a formal PTSD diagnosis. The fact is that everyone's been through pain in their life. Mm -hmm. And having and acknowledging and attending to trauma 
in your past shouldn't be a unique or isolating thing. Totally. And that's exactly what Maya Bastian, a filmmaker and journalist, wanted to explore with her 2017 film, Airshow. It's a short film about the refugee experience of the Canadian International Airshow. Oh, the airshow that happens here in Toronto. Yeah, so for the uninitiated, the air show is an event that takes place in Toronto every September. So it's three days of planes and jets flying right over Toronto neighborhoods from noon to 3 p.m. over Labor Day weekend. So Maya started with this idea of making a film about how the air show affects refugees. But soon she found that being triggered by the air show was an experience that transcended so many boundaries from personal history to age to circumstance. Here's Maya on the experience of making the film. I had a lot of people write to me, and I had people from all walks of life telling me that they were being upset by the air show. I had people, a mother of an autistic child. I had um, a Palestinian man who had experienced aerial raids and told me he hid under his table when it happened. Um, I had army veterans saying a similar story, people with young children, people with dogs. The list goes on and on of, of who, who wrote to me and said, thank you for bringing this up. Because I was just thinking about refugees. Uh, and then it broadened it to, wow, OK, there's a lot of people. I asked Maya to tell me about what inspired her to make the film about the air show in the first place. And here's what she said. So the first time I went to Sri Lanka as a journalist, I was working in areas that had experienced aerial raids, aerial bombing. So it was, yeah, it was really intense and, and, and difficult. I was young and it was difficult to come to terms with the things that I was seeing and experiencing. I, I had a lot of what I now know is like a mild form of PTSD. And when I came back, the air show was happening and it was summer and I was a dog walker here. So I was outside all the time. And I was struggling, as I said, with a lot of um, anxieties over what I had seen and the newfound knowledge that I had and the air show happened and I I had like a panic attack on the street from the noise. I actually was frozen in, in spot and I had to call my, my boyfriend at the time to come and get me. How long has that been going on? Okay, so the air show itself dates back to 1949 and includes aircraft from the Second World War, from Korea, from Vietnam. Right. It's a celebration of sorts of Canadian military history. And the air show flies over Parkdale, where Maya lives. This is a neighborhood in Toronto with a huge immigrant and refugee population. And she cast a family of Sri Lankan Tamil actors who lived in Parkdale, and they were all refugees who had experienced aerial bombing. They had never experienced the air show, and I was telling them, okay, it's going to be loud. Like, I, like so many times I had said to them, listen, it's going to be really loud, and it's going to be traumatic. And they were saying, okay, yeah, yeah, I know, it's fine, it's fine. And then when it happened, um, we were shooting, and the first plane flew over, and it was a father and his daughter, his eight-year-old daughter. And the daughter just jumped into her father's arms, and the father just you could see the look of trauma on their face. And I went over and I gave them a hug and I said, you know, are you okay? They said, yeah. And I said, you know, is it like back home? And he said, it is exactly like back home. We we rehearsed a lot. And in those rehearsals, we talked a lot about their experiences. And, you know, they talked to me about what it was like to be inside of a, a bomb shelter with 20 other villagers for two days while their village was being bombed. And he kept looking at me for the rest of the shoot and saying, why? Why does this need to happen? Why is this important to Canadians? Wow. 
Yeah. And after making that film and after speaking out in the news and in the media about the air show, Maya got huge responses, negative and positive. So who had a negative take on Maya's film? Like who's for the air show and keeping it exactly as is? Well, a lot of people reacted to Maya's film and thought that even questioning this tradition was unpatriotic and frivolous. She was trolled online. She received death threats. Rebel Media, this far-right Canadian media site, did a piece on her film. People suggested that refugees who are triggered should just get out of town for the weekend. And the refugee experience is exactly what Maya was trying to show. Triggering is not only an experience reserved for people with privilege. For snowflakes. Exactly. What I was wondering when we first started researching this episode is, do trigger warnings work? Is it even possible to protect people from triggers? Like, do these warnings shut down discussion or do they promote it? When I'm online, sometimes I'm grateful for a trigger warning, say, right before I go to sleep or first thing in the morning. Do I want to read something about sexual assault? Yeah, I think even when you're scanning a news site or Twitter to look for something to read casually on the phone, you're visually vetting things and deciding whether you want to engage with them. So if you scroll past something that's obviously about abortion, you might just decide like, oh, I'm not up for that right now and keep going. I'm in a lot of Facebook groups that use content warnings or trigger warnings. And I think it kind of comes back to those original ideas. In these groups, it's people trying to protect others in their community and trying to predict what's going to be sensitive. Makes me think of something that people poke a lot of fun at, which is the idea of a safe space. Yeah. And Amber actually had a lot to say about this when I mentioned the phrase safe spaces. I hate the word safe because <laughs> I, I find it to be a very useless word in some respects because particularly in relationship to the classroom, I don't think there is ever such thing as a safe space. I think people try to create safer spaces, but, you know, especially as an educator, no matter how much you endeavor to create a wonderful learning environment for your students, sometimes no matter what you do, it's beyond your control and students are always gonna walk into your room and feel fear and feel like there's a potential for violence. And so I, there's nothing, it's just beyond your control as an educator. And so thinking about safe spaces to me is like really something that I think we need to trouble a little bit more. And so I don't shy away from having students be uncomfortable and sort of sitting with something and, and rethinking or unlearning something. And that's exactly it, right? You can't cover every trigger. You can't make a space 100% safe. That is impossible. Yeah. But what Amber and I talked about is a phrase I really like that she used, which is an ethic of care. That's really nice. Yeah. And we talked about how puzzling it is that we're, say, all for TV ratings for kids under 12. But as soon as you're an adult, the concept that you might be triggered or like deeply upset by something is really dismissed and kind of enraging to people. Totally. It's not like at age 13, we're suddenly these bulletproof people walking through the world. Yeah, yeah. We're still emotional and many of us could be deeply affected by content. Children aren't the only people that we should have an ethic of care about, right? I asked Amber about where she'd like to see trigger warnings going in the future, mm. like how she wanted them to be used in an ideal world, and she had a great answer. She'd like them to be used more casually, more reflexively. Like it's not some big, formal, imposed, institutional thing. It's just a thing we do, like holding the door open for someone. I would love to see it 
And I think it already is happening more casually. Something I noticed from teaching teenagers is adolescents are really good about being mindful of how they come across to other people. And so something I've really learned from them, truthfully, observing them as a teacher, is a lot of them engage in casual content warnings with one another when they're talking. Even if, they're, if we're having a class discussion about something, I've noticed that sometimes students will say, quick content warning, like I'm going to just share a poem about dying by suicide or something. And it's just sort of like this gestural moment where they're just sort of being really aware of the people around them. I always find those moments to be really heartwarming because they're really cognizant of who's around them and really endeavoring to be, you know, a better person and a really good community member. So I'm not advocating that we go around, you know, just warning people about everything that comes out of our mouths, but especially in a world right now where there's just so much <laughs> there's so much to be upset about in politics and such you know I always find it really heartwarming when someone just takes a minute to just be like I want to just take a minute and critically reflect on the fact that what I'm about to say is pretty charged I love that teens are doing this there's hope there's hope for the future that's so sweet <laughs> and what a mature and thoughtful look that amber has at it compared to i think a lot of people say like oh kids are so sensitive mm -hmm. and amber's looking at it as this like courteous yeah. way to look after one another in a community mm -hmm. so hopefully we've shed a bit of light on the actual human experience of being triggered and how trigger warnings are evolving in today's culture that's all for this week's episode. Huge thanks to Amber Moore, Alicia Raimundo, and Maya Bastian for sharing their experiences and thoughts. Word Bomb, a TVO podcast, is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. Thanks to Hannah Sung, manager of podcasts at TVO. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on TVO's Facebook and Twitter. Just use the hashtag WordBomb. We're also on Instagram at WordBombPodcast and at TVO.org slash WordBomb where you can find some other resources. Today's show was recorded in the Alan Slate Studios at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario. On the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. Thanks for listening.